Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast, the show that is the baked beans to the KBB Industries Weetabix. As always, I'm your host, live from the loft, Andy Davis. Now we've got two stories of adaptation and moving forward this week. First up, we have kitchen designer and retailer Matt Podesta and his new venture, Huckleberry Kitchens, which aims to bring his brand of artisan, handmade, very British furniture away from the premium and into the mid-market. He's also got some very interesting opinions on boosting the status of designers and that old perennial charging for design, so it's definitely worth a listen. Then we meet Colin Patterson and Jackie Berker from Hetic and hear about their upcoming Experience Days, which is a really interesting virtual event designed to not only replace the lack of any face-to-face exhibitions last year and for a lot of this year too, I think, but also to build on what is possible when customers can tune in from all over the world. Really, really clever. But first... Entries for the KBB Review Retail and Design Awards close this week, Thursday, February the 18th, to be precise. There will be no extensions to that, so you have to get your entries in by the end of play Thursday. It's totally free to enter. We have categories for the best retailers, best showrooms, best designers, best installers, and for suppliers, the best support given to retailers through the lockdown. We also have a category to recognise how much retailers have done for their local communities during this incredibly difficult time. So that's Thursday, February the 18th, and all the info is at kbbreview.com forward slash awards. Right, let's talk design, training and launching new businesses in the middle of a pandemic with Matt Podesta and he's from Huckabry Kitchens based in the Cotswolds up near Oxfordshire, beautiful part of the world. Hello Matt, are you there? Yeah, hi Andy, I'm here. How are you? I'm jealous because that's where you live. What could you see out your window right now? I've got a couple of pheasants having a fight, a bit of snow and a part of the garden where it looked like a badger tore it up last night. Wow. See, I live near Penge, Matt. When I look out the window, I can see two drunks having a fight. So it, it just shows the difference be- between our relative, uh, our relative circumstances. Right, look, you've got such an interesting story to tell. So I think the best place to start is tell us a little bit about Huckleberry Kitchens, because basically you only really started it at the tail end of 2020, didn't you? Yeah, we did. You know, I've been working on a lot of collaborations over the last couple of years with other companies, and that's been very interesting. But we got to a point, really, I think it was in October of last year, when my wife and I were feeling a little bit, well, what next? You know, we we could feel that we're heading towards another lockdown, possibly. It's all a bit sort of unsure. And I've been for ages missing designing more sort of feel-good old-fashioned kitchens, which is what I started doing, you know, 20-odd years ago. And I sort of started to realise that the market, as far as I could see it, when I was talking to my interior designers and architects and things, were constantly saying, crumbs, you know, we're just seeing the same old thing again. We're seeing blue shaker kitchens or green ones, and the only differences seem to be the knobs and handles, and why is this one 80 grand and that one's 30 grand, but we can't really see the difference. And I put two and two together and thought, yes, well, maybe it's time that we create something a little bit more different. So Huckleberry was born. My wife came up with the name and we decided that rather than being a company that's hidden away or a little bit corporate or bland, we'd rather try and give it a bit of heart and soul. So Huckleberry looks very carefully at more traditional furniture or old fashioned joinery below the stairs, Georgian, Victorian buildings, and takes its influences from there. And we we look to just be rather different. We've got a sustainable aspect to what we're doing. And 
which is very hard in itself because I think as a lot of people know kitchens aren't particularly sustainable the footprint's not great but we have got some rather exciting news coming up but the pandemic's slightly putting hold on that but it involves working with a, a foundation who is very much into forestry and the second part is also not being constrained by where we seem to have found ourselves over the last sort of 10 years which is essentially just putting lots of boxes together to create a uniform, seamless look, which, you know, whilst it's practical, is perhaps becoming a little bit same old, same old. Your own background there is in classic handmade English kitchen furniture, isn't it? I mean, you're an on-the-tools kind of guy, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I trained as a designer, and I've always had an interest in woodwork. Uh, I used to do a lot of it at school, and I went on to art college and did a degree in furniture design and started my professional work in London with a small workshop and then as a designer before falling into the world of kitchens in 95 with Smallbone. And I've never left it. I've stuck with it ever since. But I suppose my overriding view on the way I approach things is as a designer, as a pure furniture designer who happens to do kitchens, or should we say a kitchen that has lots of beautiful boxes in it, which also might have an oven in it or a fridge. So I perhaps come at it at a slightly different angle. What's fascinating about this new project that you're doing here is that I've always known you as working at that kind of premium artisan end of the market, which obviously a lot of people who make that style of furniture do. Uh, But Huckleby really seems to be about bringing your high-design artisan sensibilities to the mid-market yeah. You know, that's where you're aiming this kind of stuff, isn't it? So, so why there? Why not stick at the premium end? Mid-market is a very buoyant market. It's a very affluent and it's quite a large sector of the what we might call the bespoke market. And people there are quite happy to spend between twenty-five and forty-five thousand pounds. You know, we're looking at the car industry, it's a similar sort of thing. And I used to run off the old adage that uh, there's no excuse for poor design. And what I've perhaps identified over the last few years is that the mid-market has a very small design range in terms of more traditional furniture. It all just seems to be standard shaker. But when I started 25 years ago, we had, you know, fabulous companies like Shalon in there and Mark Wilkinson, who are all producing quite alternative designs. And a lot of that has disappeared from the market. And I think it's time now that we bring back in opportunities for people to have slightly more alternative traditional furniture, which has not been around for a while. It doesn't have to cost a bomb to make, but it can be beautifully designed. And I think that this approach will give the mid-market, mid to upper market really, the opportunity to have a slightly wider selection of furniture at a more realistic price. You're still building this as handmade furniture. So what allows you to do that at this kind of price point? How are you achieving that? Well, one of the ways of doing that is by perhaps not making cupboards in exactly the same way that everyone else is doing. Everyone's making really good boxes these days, let's be honest. You know, even the Howden's guys and everything else, they're building square boxes, which we weren't getting 15 years ago. We're seeing the level of quality come up and up and up at the um, more entry-level sector of the market. And the mid-market has certainly caught up with the people that used to be the market leaders 15 years ago. So it's all blum motion runners, it's uh, veneered carcassing and everything else. I think where we are with Huckleberry is we're looking more at traditional joinery. So 
If you're taking a, a wardrobe, for instance, or a large cupboard, rather than making a big carcass and then wrapping it in 18mm MDF or um, veneers and everything else, what I'm doing is I'm going back to more traditional cabinetry where it's more framework with um, thinner panels interspersed and looking at uh, sawtooth shelf supports and more solids in there rather than veneer work. Right, so I mean, you're really getting into the nitty gritty of this, aren't you? Of, of how to bring that price point down, but keep the design element of it the same. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say that we're really keeping the price point way down. What we're doing is we're saying to people that you can have more for your money. You can have something a little bit different, something that's more traditionally made. It might cost a similar amount that you might go and get a quote from elsewhere, but what you're going to get is something a bit more individual, something with a bit more passion. And certainly something more unique, which really isn't out there at the moment. The big question here then, Matt, is how's it going so far? I mean, you launched this as a new lockdown was looming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess, of course, your advantage is you had that planned in, I'm guessing. So how's 2021 going for you so far? Well, what are we? We're, we're five, six weeks into it. January is always a bit of a stiff one anyhow. I mean, God, you don't generally close much business in January. And I think 21 has been no exception to that rule. In fact, it's been like, I'm not saying it's getting blood out of a stone, but because of the pandemic, people are sitting there saying, not just yet, not just yet. So the level of inquiries are out there, the chit chat is there, the excitement is there, but understandably, people are not quite yet putting their hands in their pockets. Yes, but I guess with a new business, you're looking at this as a long-term plan anyway. So what is next for you? What have you got planned for the rest of 2021? Well, 21 is about birthing the whole concept we've got this unfitted range which really is our big thing so we're talking already to distributors about that i've got meetings with makers tomorrow to see how much we can ramp up factory capability and then after that it's about marketing and press it's about getting to the end of the first financial year and showing a profit because once we've done that and we've got a viable product we've got good press and we've enjoyed what we're doing we've made good friends and contacts and collaborators then we've got the opportunity to reach out and look for investment. And that will be our next stage. Right, so you, you'll want to expand this beyond your own workshop in that sense? I think so. I think the idea with Huckleberry is that it is going to become a lifestyle brand. And brand is a good word. So we don't really want to be just stuck with doing joinery and furniture. We'd like to do a lot of freestanding furniture. We would want to increase it into homeware. Why can't you go into a online store and by something that is made by a company that shares the same ethos. It could be anything from a bowl through to some pottery to some lighting. And yet it comes from under the Huckleberry brand where we collaborate with other firms or other artisans who share the same visions and ideals of goodness and honesty and integrity. And we can all collaborate and come together to create more of a a homely feel and that can then get rolled out into a bigger picture. Which is great. It's brilliantly ambitious and positive and about looking forward. And I, you know, I love hearing these kind of stories at the moment because looking forward is the only thing left to us at the moment. It's great that you're starting out and doing something new. Now, look, I also want to talk to you about training and the status of designers because you've been involved in that kind of area of the industry for, for some time. You've, you're involved in the kitchen design degree course, various other initiatives, So tell us what you've been doing with the Worshipful Company of Furniture Makers. And I think the best place to probably start is what is the Worshipful Company of Furniture Makers? 
Well, the Wishful Company for Ancient Makers is a London or a city of London livery. And as I'm sure many people will know, the livery was there to represent all the major trades of the city of London or the Corporation of London uh, many centuries back. And you used to have a little red card, which means that you could come in through the, the gates of London and do trade inside the city of London, whether you were into wool, woodworking, pottery, law, whatever. The livery itself is, like all other liveries, is a charity, and it's there to support, in our profession, the furniture industry, hence being called the Workable Company of Furniture Makers. I've been a freeman and then I've been a liveryman since 2009. I've sat on various committees, whether it be young furniture makers or helping other people come on board. But as a charity, what we're trying to do is make sure that we look out for smaller businesses that want to come in, need some support, need guidance when they can't perhaps get it elsewhere. Sometimes they fall on hard times and, and, and need a bit of help in that sense. And I can say that during the pandemic, as a charity, the livery has been very generous to a lot of people, which is wonderful. But we're very keen on looking forward to expanding the livery in terms of not just education, but I've raised the fact that the livery doesn't, or traditionally hasn't looked at the kitchen sector. And it's not because it doesn't want to. It's because the kitchen market, as we know, is just huge. And where do you draw the line or how do you do it? So without giving too much away, we're, we're very much at early stages. We're forming a committee to discuss how we can work with more designer makers and companies and independents to acknowledge the hard work and the skill sets that they've all got. And one of the things that the livery has is something called the bespoke guild marks. And they're generally or traditionally have been very much there for very highbrow, high quality sort of John Makepeace style furniture, which is great, but that doesn't really help the fitted or the kitchen uh, industry. So me and a few others are now looking at ways to address this, uh, bring kitchens into the livery and look at ways of supporting companies who are traditionally actually quite often very much on their own. And the kitchen industry doesn't uh, communicate together particularly well. And seeing if there's uh, something we can do there to give more independence a bit of a leg up and also look at ways of networking and meeting each other. We actually had Johnny Westbrook, who runs the Worshipful Company of Furniture Makers, on a podcast back in the summer talking yeah. about the work they're doing to support uh, yeah. people who have fallen on hard times. I guess your, your immediate thought when you hear about an organisation like that, which has that kind of name, is that you think it's all going to be to steal something very Oxfordshire, a bit mm. like an episode of Inspector Morse, yeah. you know? Like it's all people in robes passing silver goblets to each other or something, but it's really not. Oh, it is. It is. <laughs> well, there's a lot of that, but but the but the function the function of it is not you know a big old gentleman's club. The function of it is very much to support and help the industry, and I think certainly Johnny's very proactive in in new initiatives and uh, new ways of trying to get more and more people involved from different sectors. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, Andy. I've dipped in and out of the livery over the years because, especially twenty years ago, it was quite fusty dusty and it didn't really do a huge amount for me but actually now that johnny's got involved in a few others there's a huge amount more energy there and a lot more reaching out and it's getting back to really what a charity should be in my view yeah i mean this is all about i suppose and all your work in this area is all about raising the status of design within the kitchen sector isn't it now this is a debate that's been going on since the discovery of fire um yes. but 
you know, you obviously think that by integrating with existing organizations like this, that can only help move everybody in the right direction. Yeah. Um, gosh, I, what, what I really got to be careful because, I, you know, you don't want to alienate anybody or, or upset any elements of the market. And I, I tend to operate, as you know, in the, in the bespoke sector, as they call it. Uh, which is not a you know, financially is not a large part of part of the market. At, at one point, I believed it's probably worth maybe a hundred million, maybe a bit more. I don't know. Which is percentage-wise a, a very small um, part of the UK market. But the key thing is that clients or the general public have got to the point where they think it's their God-given right to go around to three or four companies or five, six companies, take a couple of hours of everybody's time. Designers then go and put hours and days of work into doing a pitch. And uh, I've watched people put, you know, hundreds of pounds, if not thousands of pounds into a pitch, only to then find out that they're up against four or five other people. And out of that, only one person is going to win. So that one client has perhaps wasted two, three thousand pounds of time of effort of other people. But actually, I think that as a designer, if you are any good, which most are really very good, you should be charging for the, that time. You know, if you go to the hairdresser, you get offered a junior or a medium or a senior weight person, a lawyer, you know, solicitor, doctor, any other profession, pretty much you get and you pay for what you get. So I would love it if more companies were able to say, do you know what, we'll do a meet and agree, we'll have a coffee. But after that, we charge to come out and do a design, we charge to do a survey. And at that point, you qualify each other very much earlier on in the process that could enable more companies to publicly put their prices out. I mean, certainly it's a joy looking at things like the Devolve brochure where they put all their prices. You know what you're going to get. It's self-qualifying. Wonderful. You know, even our friends at Neptune, they charge for servicing now. That is the ideal world. That is the panacea that everybody would like to happen. But of course, there's lots of arguments against that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're doing it, but the guy down the road isn't. I think lots of people will put a charge up front, but then if you book it, then comes off the price rather than it being a, a separate itemized thing. And I think there's lots of ways around it. But I, t- I don't think you'd find anybody who would disagree with that as a concept. I think it's making it happen is the hard part and, and qualifying it in the moment when you're sat opposite the client. Yeah, it's a tough one, and it really is. And the only way that it's really going to happen is if there's more momentum behind it and more people are able to say, do you know what, I'm worth it, and here it is. But the the interesting thing from a sales perspective is that if you are able to convince a client that £250 or £350, whatever it is, to put pen to paper to create a design for them is value for money, and it's as you say, it's refundable against a, a commission, even if you charge the £250, you've essentially covered a lot of your basic costs up front. It means you're not out of pocket. And I think that's important, especially in these times of post-pandemic when a lot of people are um, struggling a bit. Uh, if you can stand up and say, I'm worth it, then I think that's great. And the more people that do that, the more it'll become normal. Yes, and I, and again, this is... Um... A subject we will absolutely revisit again in the future because it is an abs- it's an absolute perennial, this one. Yeah. I think even small initiatives, small moves forward, small steps forward, like the kind of thing you're looking to do, I think can only move everyone in the right direction. So I think, it's, I think it is fantastic. But look, for now, Matt, the bespoke clock has beaten us and there's only one more question to craft and meticulously whittle into an answer. 
This is, of course, Matt, you've had a bad day, you get yourself home, you want to cheer yourself up, put the TV on. What is the most feel-good, happy movie you're going to choose? What is your entry into the silence of the laminates? I, I, funny enough, I watched it again at Christmas. It's a bit of a favourite of mine. It's uh, politically wonderfully incorrect these days, but it's Trading Places. Trading Places. Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd, and, of course, for, for men our age, that bit with Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes, a sublime moment, yes. That's the moment a boy became a man. Let's not go into detail. Uh, Look, Matt, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. All the best luck in the world with Huckleberry Kitchens. Incidentally, is that Finn or Hound? We're actually looking at Huckleberry in in itself, and Huckleberry Finn fits into it quite nicely, but actually it is the Huckleberry. Ah, so it's the actual berry itself. Oh, I see. I was hoping you were going to say Huckleberry Hound, because that would have made my day. Not today, but we could try. You never know. (laughs) Look, Matt, thank you so much for your time, and we will speak again soon. Thanks, Andy. Now, one of the biggest dilemmas for big brands and suppliers during the last 12 months has been what to do instead of exhibiting at big trade shows across Europe and beyond. Many are turning to virtual events, of course, and a great example is Hetic, who are about to start something called their Experience Days. So, to explain all... Joining me down the line is Colin Patterson, who is the Marketing Technical Services Manager here in the UK. Hello, Colin. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm fine, sir. Thank you very much. Now, you're in Salford. Uh, Yes, I am. And also down the line, we have Jackie Berker, who is the Project Manager in Market Intelligence, but you're over in Germany. Yes. Hello from Germany. Thanks for letting me part of it. Well, thank you for coming all this way. Uh, now, actually, Colin, I'm going to start with you, if that's OK, because I think before we actually get into what the experience days are all about, I think it's important, it's important to put it all into context a little bit. So let's go, let's go right back. How has business been for Hetic here in the UK during 2020 and now into 2021? What's, what's been going on with you? As we all know, March 2020 was the start of the first lockdown. We literally straight after the KBB exhibition, which was really positive for us. Q2 then became quite tough because obviously there was a lot of furloughing and people closing retail outlets. However, we had some decent strategies in place and a professional response So we were able to have a really good second half of the year, meaning we were actually very close to hitting our targets. And we had a couple of uh, record sales months last year as well, which was totally unexpected. So you've seen the same ups and downs of high demand and virtually no demand, which obviously reflects exactly what's been going on in the market. But what about 2021? What are you seeing as we pass New Year, middle of February? How are you seeing it so far? Yeah, it started really well, to be fair. I mean, obviously, we had the additional problems with Brexit hitting us at the end of last year as well. But, you know, we had some intensive preparations throughout last year to make sure that the impact on our customers and on us was as minimal as possible. Uh, We've addressed quite a few issues like the increase in paperwork. I mean, for instance, on paperwork, we used to take two pieces of paper for a delivery for a trailer. We now have to take nearly a ream of paper for the same delivery. Logistical complications, increased costs, and we just wanted to make the transition as smooth as possible for our customers. So we've had a decent January. We've had a good start to February. So we see it staying similar to this for the next few months, but then 
when we come out of the lockdown and, and customers start wanting to take holidays and, and things like that, then we're unsure really of where we're going to go. But we feel as though we've got all of the processes in place to allow us to da- adapt to as and when necessary. That's one of the most interesting things here. And again, this all leads up to what you're doing with your event. You've always been a very face-to-face company, I think. You, know, you always attend lots of events. You want to travel the country, see people. And yet, you know, everything stops. And that's been the same for everybody, of course. How much have you led yourselves into a much more virtual world of communication? It's interesting because in the past, we've probably spoken face-to-face with our German colleagues twice, maybe three times a year. And in the last eight weeks alone, I've probably had 20 meetings face-to-face with my German colleagues, albeit over the virtual WebEx situation, but at least we're actually seeing their faces and talking to them face-to-face. And I think this is one of the good things, I guess, that's come out of the pandemic. You know, we're on an island and, and are far away from Germany. So it it costs us flights and time and travel expenses, whereas now a lot of our meetings going forward will be done virtually, I think. So as I say, you exhibit at a lot of shows. You do KBB here, as you said. The big one is uh, Intizum over in Cologne, which is a big sort of fixtures and fittings show. But obviously none of that has happened. So when you sit down and go, right, none of this is going on, What's your thought process of how you find an answer to still get out, talk to customers, launch new products? What's your thought process? I think I'll pass that over to Jackie because obviously Jackie's been involved in the initial conceptual phase of that. So let me backtrack a little bit. The last year, I think everyone was thinking about the future. So how, what will happen? How will the next year, so this year or the next week look like? So will there be customers who do not want to travel or are not allowed to travel to fairs, for example, as you um, already talked about it? But how should we inspire our customers with our innovations and solutions and, of course, ideas if we do not meet them as normally on a fair, for example? And therefore, we have to rethink many things. We want to reach all our customers and partners around the complete globe. That's the main important thing. And we do not know how the situation will be in different countries. So that could be completely different, but we want to reach them all. And of course, also, we want to create a safe environment for our employees. Right, because even the, the limited bit that I've, uh, you've sort of revealed about what you're going to do here, what you're planning here is very different than just doing an online exhibition, isn't it? It's not the same thing. The word, you, you know, you've used the word experience, and I think that comes across as what you're trying to achieve. You're trying to give the people who visit an experience. Yes, you're absolutely right. We want uh, that our customers have these experience. As you said, we want to inspire them with solutions and ideas. We want that they are informed. Uh, We want to show them digital services. So everyone is talking about hybrid events. So we also want to make a hybrid event, not only a fair or show, which is online. We want to make a hybrid event. So hybrid, what does it mean? That means that we put together the best out of the analog and virtual world. So our customer can decide if we want to participate uh, virtually or on-site or maybe both. So everything is possible and we can react to different circumstances, to different countries, to different needs of our customers. And therefore, we can inspire them 
and we can immerse them in new worlds, in new future worlds. Okay, so I'm going to sign up for this experience days. I'm going to put my name in, put my details in. What am I going to see? What's actually going to happen? So we set up the experience world, which we've created, and had a look for megatrends because megatrends affect us all. For example, we all have experienced it. Urbanization, especially also in UK, the living space is getting smaller and smaller, but much more expensive. So new emerging situations and new living concepts demand a new and flexible living environment. And also the space and the furniture must react to different circumstances. And these mega trends serve us as a guide. So, for example, we've created different apartments of different sizes from micro to macro apartments. We will show our customers one apartment, which is around 18 square meters, to apartments which are around 50 square meters, but which react on different possibilities where you can transform rooms, for example. Um, we will have a look for shop and interior design and fittings and what is important there for the future, for new work in 2025. And our customer can experience this in a virtual way, for example, with a digital tour, with videos, with different possibilities. Also, of course, this 3D tour. Or if it is possible, he can come to us to our headquarter in our Hattich Forum and can have a look on this on-site, of course. It sounds a huge amount of work is going into this, and I don't envy you that. Probably more than goes into a normal exhibition, I would imagine. Definitely, definitely. So we had a lot of work in the last few months, and I think that was, for me, the most work I've ever had at Hedish. But it makes so much fun because we had a look for what is really important for our customers, and it makes so much fun to get in new ideas and new digital ways and also to see some customers where we've talked with before and they like the idea. So I really like the idea to make an event, for example, with a keynote speaker to combine this with customer visits and the customer do not need to come. He can be at home, I think, as we all more or less um, and can have a look for the keynote speech from home and can have a look into the showroom. So I really love this idea. How many people are you expecting to, to tune in over the course of this Experience Days project? So that, that's a hard question, of course. So we definitely want to reach as many customers and people as on an Interzoom, for example, because that's our main trade pair, of course. But, of course, more because now we can reach reach much more people than normally on just the trade fair because everyone can participate who's interested in normally on a fair there are just some people who are considered to this topic and now we can reach much more people out of one company because they do not need to travel that's an interesting point andy because what we've done is we've not just invited the buyer like we we would maybe do if we were taking them to Interzum, we've invited every member of the team. So we may have sent eight invites to one company and we've then asked that company to send invites to their customers. So we actually get, you know, more retailers, more designers, more shop fitting customers involved in experience days because it's open to anybody who's interested in furniture design. You know, we're showing showing our customers and our and our customers' customers how to use our products 
in different ways. And that and that's exciting about it. It is. It's a brilliant concept. I really like what you're doing with it because it's not just a you know here's our new products thing. It's a it's a very demonstrative, interactive thing. But being the devil's advocate here, it's not the same as touching and feeling and opening those drawers and opening those doors, is it? It's not. The, it's not the same. I appreciate that this is the best possible alternative right now. But do you think there'll be some pushback from customers about it committing themselves to a purchase until they've touched and felt things? That's a good point. I think from from our point of view, the majority of our customers will have already seen and touched and felt these products. What we're doing is giving them ideas for using the products in different ways. So for instance, sliding products being used to move walls rather than move doors. As an instance, that's one of the things with the, the apartments that we're looking at, the smaller apartments to show how we can use drawer boxes, for instance, underneath beds. And it might sound, well, we've done that with divans and things, but this drawer actually runs the full length of the bed. So it's lots of new ideas using the same products that the customers have already seen and and touched and felt. You're the guy who organises your presence at the KBB show, for example. Jump forward to 2022 when the next KBB show is. You're there on your stand, but how do you think you're going to combine what you've learned through this with a physical exhibition like KBB? Again, that's an, an interesting topic that we we have already talked about, and I think what we'll be looking to do, because you can imagine a lot of what is going to be on the experience days is going to continue to be available in the forum in Germany. So customers, once the restrictions are removed, customers, if they wish to, will will be able to go and see these exhibits over in Germany. So what we will probably do in 2022, when we go to the exhibition at KBB again, will be have touchscreen products where the customer can go and look at these virtual presentations and virtual displays on our stand. So they'll come onto our stand be able to do what you've just said, touch and feel the product, but then also be able to to go into the virtual world and see the products being used in these ideas and new ideas which are developed over the next two years, three years, four years. Which can only be an enhanced experience for the retailer, for the customer, for the manufacturer who uses your products. I, I do think it's a brilliant um, a leap forward in a way. I, I, this just simply would not have happened, this kind of embracing technology like this, if this pandemic hadn't happened, oddly. I, I agree, yes. Well, look, I can't wait to sort of have a look and have a sniff around and see what this thing actually looks like because it does sound so fascinating. As I say, this is a great case study for the conversations that a lot of manufacturers are having about how to interact with their customers while lockdowns are happening, but also how the technology everyone has embraced can be used in the future to communicate with their customers. So I do think it's such an interesting thing and it'd be great to, to catch up and see how it goes. But look, for now, I think the uh, virtual clock has beaten us. Jackie, thank you for joining us all the way from Germany. Thank you. Thank you, Afi Zane. And thank you very much, Colin, for joining us all the way from Salford. All right. Yeah, all right. Thank you very much. All right. And uh, we'll catch up again soon. All the best. That's it for this week. Huge thanks to Matt, Colin, and Jackie. You can find out all the links to them and everything they're doing in the episode description. And don't forget that awards closing date, Thursday, February the 18th. And all the info is at kbbreview.com 
forward slash awards. See you next time.